At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up zero to one grams of net carbs, five to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Had a feeling you'd be here! <laughs> the cycles haven't been kind, have they? Oh, you don't look so bad. I did everything! Everything you ever asked! I know you did. I executed the plan! As you saw it. You... You promised that we would change the world together. You broke your promise. I know. I understand that. I took the system to its maximum potential. I created the perfect system! The thing about perfection is that it's unknowable. It's impossible, but it's also right in front of us all the time. You wouldn't know that because I didn't when I created you. I'm sorry, Blue. I'm sorry. A culminating scene from Tron Legacy, where Flynn confronts his digital twin and algorithmic shadow, Clue the demiurge of the virtual reality universe known as the grid perfection is the argument can it be achieved or is flynn right we'll get into that shortly first please allow me to introduce myself my name is miguel connor and i am your pompadus of gnosis welcome to the desert of the real Welcome to Aeon Bite. We don't take prisoners but liberate them. We are not the final authority on anything but hope to be an endless possibility for everything. You are the final authority, have always been. Divided we stand, together we rise. This may not be the best time to be alive, but it's the best time to be awake. Even as the Archons fight against the inner man, as the Nag Hammadi Library says. Eternity hasn't gone anywhere these last few years. It's still there for your taking. It's your birthright as a child of Hermes, the god of thieves, and Sophia, the goddess of smugglers. Do not try and bend the spoon. That's impossible. Instead. Said, only try to realize the truth. What truth? There is no spoon. There is no spoon? Then you'll see that it is not the spoon that bends, it is only yourself. This quote by Philip K. Dick explains a lot. Today we live in a society in which spurious realities are manufactured by the media, 
by governments, by big corporations, by religious groups, political groups. So I ask, in my writing, what is real? Because unceasingly, we are bombarded with pseudo-realities manufactured by very sophisticated people using very sophisticated electronic mechanisms. I do not distrust their motives. I distrust their power. They have a lot of it. And it is an astonishing power, that of creating whole universes, universes of the mind. I ought to know. I do the same thing. There's a beauty to this world. An order. That's what we like to believe. We're not wrong. There is an order. A grand design. We made sure of that. It was a dream for so long, and we finally made it real. Not a better world. Perfect Thanks for laying your cards on the table, also demiurgic man in black from Westworld. And cool quote, Phil. I know you're urging us to write our own gospel and live our own myth. Urge us to create better than the creator gods and their Karens and Katamites in the establishment. To imagine freer worlds and deeply understand the narrative of the cosmos its archetypal images and symbolical energies and mythic resonances that have been used against us for millennia. Those in power want to create for us a universe of pods and bugs and owning nothing and fake plastic trees. Instead, we will create a universe of innovation and compassion, one devoid of any type of slavery or bigotry. Yes, we will. And I'm glad you're here with me, you shining crazy diamonds. For this universe of the mind is also the end of all utopias from the men in black. What the ancient Hebrews were to Egypt and the early Christians were to Rome, we are now to this corrupt new American empire. It's an ancient fight, Nick. The values of the individual against the supremacy of the state. Certainly, to create a better universe, a better universe of the mind. A theme of this show this year has been to uncover the suppressed secrets of the land. Connect with the trickster spirits and forgotten goddesses of the woods. We'll have more shows in the future on arcane North America. Yet in this eternal now, we focus on Finland, an overlooked landscape of portals and ancient pagan magic a country that interacted in transformative ways with Theosophy, Gurdjieff, Thelema, Freemasonry, and occult Nazism. This is This is madness! And much more, and in ways that will help us understand better Western esotericism in general. The focus comes from the book, Lightbringers of the North, Secrets of the Occult Tradition of Finland, our astral guest is one of the work's authors, Vesa Liti. Any of you D&D players ever had a huge crush on Iluviatar in the deities and demigods Finnish mythos section? 
And yes, I should also ask about Olivia Wilde in Tron Legacy. Woof, woof. Mr. Garrison, Wendy and I think that was a sexist statement. Just checking. And anyhow, don't check out for a fascinating book and a fascinating interview. Rhodes? Well, we're going, we don't need Rhodes. Back to perfection. To that Tron Legacy speech on perfection. I say that Plato is history's first technocratic eugenicist, as seen in his work, The Republic. Scholar Mark O'Brien once said that's not Plato's worst idea. It was his concept of perfection. Once Plato rolled out the world of ideas or forms, the notion of the one or monad being a static, unmoving blob of flawlessness, it crippled Western man's psyche. It was a disaster. Perfect world, no dream, but your primitive cerebrum kept trying to wake up from. The bar was raised too high for both a god to be and a mortal to achieve. I mean, what the hell is perfection anyway? Look at Yahweh, a storm angel who was only interested in playing in the desert and taking care of his people. Almost overnight, dude was elevated to being omnipotent, omnipresent, and omniscient. Why? Why should any divine being be perfect when divinity is simply a transcendental attribute and being part of the flow of a higher existence? Be perfect like your heavenly father became a choking mantra that stifled the elegant messiness of alchemical growth and expanded consciousness. The experience of the eternal. That's what you are. Yes. I would say that. That whatever eternity is, is here right now. And nowhere else. Or everywhere else. The bar wasn't just raised too high. It was impossible to reach because it doesn't exist. Or at least it doesn't lend to the loving but chaotic courtship that is reaching oneness with all of existence. As author Shannon Alder said, There is no perfection, only beautiful versions of brokenness. Junkies and masochists and hookers and those who have squandered everything are the ring of brightest angels around heaven. The ground of being shouldn't be in some lofty, frozen dimension, next to the stupid ideal form of a chair or something. Instead, the ground of being should be on the dirty ground with the grimy tears of wisdom and the despised philosopher's stone buried in the mud. Jason Reza Giorgiani said that Ahura Mazda was not omnipotent or omniscient. Just being the main emitter of light and wisdom was enough to make him supreme in a dark universe. All that is visible must grow beyond itself and extend into the realm of the invisible. So screw the one, or more like the one interpreted by those seeking power, those writing the narrative of this universe. Let's instead embrace the god in the gutter of Philip K. Dick. Your heart is pure. The broken are the more evolved. 
The Gnostics at least didn't buy fully into this notion of perfection. The all, or the pleroma, as is written in Secret John, encompasses everything and is in everything. A gradient of imagination that was part of an astral noetic river of revelation. The pleroma was pure, liberating information that couldn't be bothered with omnipotence or any other features of matter. The Gnostics use apophatic theology, keen koans, and mythopoeia to tell us that we were meant to organically experience the pleroma, the all, dance with the numinous until we melted into an essence of love and holy silence. The quest is to be liberated from the negative, which is really our own will to nothingness. And once having said yes to the instant, the affirmation is contagious. It bursts into a chain of affirmations that knows no limit. To say yes to one instant is to say yes to all of existence. In some texts like Marsanis, there is even a God above God above God. So perhaps spiritual evolution never ends, and you just keep growing, keep adventuring, because at the end of the eternity, it's just so dang fun. Are you not entertained? Are you not entertained? Is this not why you are here? That's the message of Flynn and Tron Legacy. We are still in the grid with the Demiurge or Man in Black, however, so let's not worry about perfection and continue writing a new narrative with our interview with Vesa. Not a better world. A perfect one. And you can come along too, Yahweh. We need to get you back to your old position and find your wife, Ashira. Aeon Byte interview. And with us, we have the pleasure of being joined by Vesa Ite to discuss his book, Lightbringers of the North Secrets of the Occult Tradition of Finland. Vesa, how are you doing? Doing good, thank you. Honored to be here on your show. Thank you very much. The honor is all ours. And with us, too, we've got the Lightbringer of California, the Moondog Vans. Vans, how are you doing? Oh, I'm fine. Boy, those are big shoes to, <laughs> to walk in <laughs> California. But it's not often that we hear from uh, those up north there. So uh, this should be very interesting, I think. Mm -hmm. Well, this would be the second one. I had the honor a couple of years ago of interviewing Aki Sederberg. Uh, you uh -huh. know him, right, Vesa? His work. I love his work. 
Absolutely. Aki is a good friend of mine. And uh, as, as you said, uh, his work is great. Like uh, Journeys in Kali Yuga is awesome book. And uh, also his new book, uh, Pyha Europa, Holy Europe, that is coming in English sometime uh, in near future. Uh, it's a great book as well. So if uh, somebody has liked Aki's work, uh, his next book is something to look forward to as well. Oh, I agree. I definitely would love to have a chat with him. Yeah, his book, uh, Journeys in the Kali Yuga, the way his adventures in India and connecting the East and the West and the traditions of Finland, just a and a lot of beautiful poetic prose that he puts in his work. Very good stuff. So Yeah. So, but you've done also a great job yourself with this book, uh, which gives such a new light, brings a lot of light to the rich tradition of occultism and esoterica in Finland. So maybe let's start with you. Uh, tell us about yourself. Uh, how did you become interested in these topics and what led you to writing uh, Lightbringers of the North? Oh, that's a long story. Uh... I try to put it short. Uh, well, uh, I've, I've been interested in these topics like uh, since a very early age. And uh, I've been uh, myself involved in different kind of groups throughout the years. I'm pretty private when it comes to my own practice, but uh, uh, being involved with this and that, uh, maybe I could say that uh, since the early 2000, 2002 or so, I've been... Uh, involved with the local Kurjiev group and uh, daily meditation has been my practice like uh, since 2015 and and, and so uh, I have a master's degree uh, in comparative religion so I've study wise too like I've been uh, digging this this field and uh, when it comes to our book um, it came out uh, Valonkantajat in original Finnish. It came in 2015. It was a huge success. It's now in its fourth Finnish print, and uh, there is also a Finnish, Finnish audiobook available. It was a it was a big uh, big success. The second print of the Finnish version went into printers already, like uh, after two weeks. The first uh, edition had been out and uh, we got lots of uh, coverage in national all kinds of media uh, it, the book inspired like a local occult walk, walking tours in turku and helsinki and one theater play in uh, Oulu, northern part of the country and uh, well uh, the bertu hakkin a dear friend of mine who unfortunately passed away 2018 in a bicycle accident he approached me about the book in 2013 when I was at this book affair in Helsinki talking about my translation of Gianni de Salzman's The Reality of Being. And he approached me about this uh, idea. He had this idea that uh, because there is no like a popular history work of this area in, in, in Finnish, like a, between uh, one book's covers, like the... Uh, general view of what has happened in our country when it comes to occult esotericism like uh, why wouldn't we write it he was uh, familiar with uh, my previous like uh, books and uh, translations i had done and i had a quite popular blog back then that that i wrote and he really liked the touch that i have and the sense of humor 
he sensed that we have a very similar approach. And uh, so he thought that this might be a great thing to do with me. I wasn't uh, initially so like a sure, like a, hmm, what to think of that? Is it a good idea or not or so? And a um, few months passed and he approached me again and we talked more about it. And uh, then I warmed up to the idea that, hey, this is actually a nice idea. And this, um, this guy, we get very well along and uh, have similar kind of approach and sense of humor. So, yeah, let's go for it. And, uh, and we started to, well, build the structure of the book and we got the uh, book deal very quickly. And from there it went. And uh, it was very important to Pertu that um, the book would also be published in English. And uh, when the first, the finished edition came out, he immediately <laughs> started to nudge me friendly that, uh, hey, maybe you could translate our book too, because uh, we didn't have fund funding for uh, get somebody else professionally translate the book into English. Uh, it's not it's not that cheap. And he knew that I had translated some works earlier. So he thought that uh, I could do it if we could save the money. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> yeah. but, uh, but I, I was busy with other things. And I, I kind of felt like that I need to break from this this now. And uh, we can, we can lit, return to it later. But then this sad thing happened in 2018. Pertu passed away. And uh, I remembered the thing still, and uh, I got this feeling that uh, this is a matter of honor, uh, honoring uh, his work, to work for a national radio. He was a kind of a light bringer himself, uh, esotericism, occult topics, um, things like that were a regular theme in his uh, national radio show. And uh, so it was a matter of honoring his work and also his will in general about getting this book out that he considered very highly and he often referred uh, our book that it's an important part of our great work to use Alastair Crowley's term <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so I thought that uh, I, I need to do this because I had a feeling if I don't translate it maybe nobody will and uh, I, I knew I know the book very well. I knew it and uh, I knew Pertu and the touch we had to the book. I thought that if I leave it for somebody later to translate, there are chances that it don't get so well done as we both would have wanted. So I decided that, okay, that's it. Also, uh, I had also, Pertu came to my dreams a few times after he passed away, still reminding me that this is important. <laughs> this needs to <laughs> be finished. So. There it is. And uh, I contacted Inner Traditions, uh, John Graham, uh, who Pertu had initially contacted already, I think 2015, 2016. And uh, the discussion continued and uh, uh, I got the deal for the book and uh, the process started and continued. And now the book is finally out there. It's great. Well, wonderful. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, I read... Uh... I finished the book yesterday and I was uh, sad about Pertu. Uh, even what a, and I, we hope uh, your book definitely honors him. We hope to honor him in the show. It, it's interesting because Pertu in Portuguese means close by. And oh. I was thinking uh, this morning I put a, 
I put on Facebook a picture of my 10-year-old daughter in her ballet recital. She's doing very well. And one of my aunts is like, your mother would be so proud. And I'm like, no, no, no. She is proud. They haven't gone anywhere. The dead just speak a different language, right? They come in our right. dreams, symbols. Right. They're, they're still around and the moment has never ended. So Berto right. is still, he's still enjoying it and he's part of the whole thing, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. I agree. I mean, if we don't, you know, we in the cult sometimes don't eat our own dog food, right? We act like uh, Protestants or Catholics when, when, when the going gets tough, when we realize we're seeped in this, in this uh, yeah. esoterica. Right. So good deal. Well, um, and uh, speaking of the esoterica, and you do deal with this in your book, you talk about what exactly is Western esotericism? Because uh, as you write, um, most people think that uh, the Western mystery tradition or Western esoterica is simply sort of Gnostic, Hermetic, and Neoplatonic theology filtered through Renaissance magicians and then sort of couched in protestant ideology and then a lot of times it it, it ignores paganism it uh it rejects new age i mean maybe tell the audience what exactly is esotericism because it's important to know this when you know you're talking about all these subjects in your book right yeah it's uh before the first chapter uh we go through definitions of the of terms like uh, what is esotericism what is occult and and all all of these things. Well, this is um this is a deep topic. And when it comes to like academic definitions of these terms, uh, looking at the history of how this discussion has been handled, like the the meaning of the words have changed a bit, um, and uh, there's never been consensus. Like also nowadays, there's like a not like a firm exact definition what it exactly means what it exactly it contains but um but um and uh, the, um, okay yeah basically it could be said that um i try to put this a bit uh maybe black and white clearly that esotericism it can be said to mean that it means a kind of rejected knowledge kind of uh um uh, literally esoteric or from Greek, it means something inside, something inner, and uh, it refers to um, kind of uh, like a deeper knowledge of of universe of what is in there. That is, um, and it involves a kind of idea of gnosis, knowledge. This kind of knowledge of uh, deeper understanding of uh, the universe. It's a it's something that uh, is uh, available for a kind of selected few, those initiated into some tradition. It's uh, transmitted from a, from a person, from teachers to students or a group to the students. And there are certain ways how this knowledge is transmitted. And as such, uh, it is uh, like the op opposite of esotericism is uh, exoteric. Like what is uh, what one can read from New York Times or <laughs> or listen to from this podcast. Uh, this is more kind of exoteric, although we are talking about esoteric ideas. But exoteric means something that is open to anybody. 
is basically all, all there in, in the public to access if you are interested. So esotericism is something that is like a, for a selected few, for those initiated. It's a kind of a hidden hidden knowledge. It's it's there. Occult, occultism, uh, these things, these words uh, are quite like a overlap. They, they refer to similar kind of things, but I think occult, occultism, it's more general term. It refers uh, in general, uh, like a, a hidden knowledge, hidden, uh, hidden like a wisdom. It kind of any can refer to any kind of like a practice that is done like um, in this kind of uh, magical ways, and it can involve all kind of uh, things, uh, alchemy and uh, astrology, all kind of all kind of things. It's more more vague, if you will. But uh, if you ask from some scholar, they might disagree, and another scholar might more or less agree, and they would have a different kind of viewpoints. But uh, but um, yeah, this I would say kind of a basic rough rough take on what is esotericism, what is occultism, occult, and um, uh, yeah, there earlier before I answered, there was a point about point about uh, how uh, like a, what what is Western esotericism in in a in, in a Western studies of Western esotericism. Uh, this came. This this came from this Antoine Fiver. I don't probably pronounce the man's name wrong, but uh, he had a very important role in uh, how Western esotericism or esotericism in general has been defined. And uh, he had very exact requirements. What what can be considered to be within the realm of esotericism and. Uh, uh, in his definition, there were uh, things that left out from from the definition. Things like um, modern paganism and uh, influences from Eastern things like Hinduism, yoga, and all these kind of things. So these things uh, leave, and they uh, are a matter of uh, definition. So they, they 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 are they change. Oh yeah, I do like. Uh... Yeah, Antoine Favre. I'm sure I'm mm -hmm. butchering his name too, since it's <laughs> French. Yeah. But uh, he talks about four and eight characteristics that define uh, these currents of esotericism. Yep. And yep. one is the idea of correspondence, obviously, mm -hmm. Hermes as above, so below. The right. idea of nature as a living whole, that would mm -hmm. include paganism, mm -hmm. importance of imagination, and some spiritual idea of being as a medium mm -hmm. for communication on the path to spiritual insight the inner world which of course you find in the east you find in greek orthodoxy and then for the goal of transmutation so i think that's right. a good one because that one you can certainly include like you said pagan traditions you can include the east you know aki can say yes the the hindu sadhu is the same as the russian shaman they're both looking for the same and this definition or characteristics work for these Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In addition to these four points, uh, there are also two relative traits, like a special ways to transmit knowledge, like a teacher-student uh, relationship or 
or a group and student. And then there's also this uh, kind of harmonious consideration of different uh, philosophies. And the point of this was to find a, a common ground behind different traditions. Uh, I, I think this is a, this philosophy of Perenis concept points to that, that uh, deep, um, yeah. deep, deep there, there is a kind of a common ground, right. an ontological reality, which is shared through different kind of uh, traditions and so, yeah. But you summarize very well those four points, yeah. Oh, thank you. Yeah, well, it's in your book, straight out of the horse's mouth, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, well, the audience might also know before we really delve into your book, uh, what exactly was Finland before Christ came along? And I'm sure Christ came very peacefully with his followers, right? <laughs> very peacefully, right? <laughs> oh, well, uh, when it comes to history of Finland, like what it was like around year zero, Oh, we were uh, we were this uh, very little known pocket here in the north that uh, no, not too many people knew that much. Um, then, uh, of course, like uh, we were um, we were part of uh, we started to become part of uh, Sweden or under Sweden Sweden's influence in the. 12th century and that continued till the uh, 1809 then we became part of russia which was from 1809 till 1917 when we became independent um, uh, before christian's arrival we had of course like the kind of nature-based religion um, in the up in the north there was this um, shamanistic tradition fairly strong, strong among the Sami people and more in the east of the country I would say that there was probably this kind of a verbal verbal magic tradition stronger but these are kind of things I'm I'm not exactly sure but at least later this kind of uh, emphasizes in areas was there but anyway it was a very nature naturally oriented uh, spiritual uh, area and uh, yeah the uh, Christianity arrived here like pretty much elsewhere like uh, we know what it is <laughs> <laughs> we know what happened <laughs> yeah yeah but I think wasn't one of the uh, you might say game-changing events was uh, Kalevala being published in 1835 that sort of gave this Finnish epic account of the gods and their hero Vaine Nomain. That really, that changed things too. And I must say that uh, I knew of the Kalevala in Finnish uh, mythology because of all places, it was used to be part of the Dungeons and Dragons thing. As a somebody of my age, Dungeons and Dragons was very important and the, the Finnish mythos was a big deal. So we would use the gods and all that, but... Uh, mm -hmm. But again, that changed. Uh, it really gave your country a sense of belonging and pride and looked into the past. Right, right. If I go a little bit backwards to the time of Christianity, a uh, funny anecdote. Uh, the first official documents about Finland is uh, uh, a papal bull uh, from uh, the, the Pope of the time. I think this was from the 12th century. 
the the note was to uh, Archbishop of Uppsala, Sweden. We were under Swedish rule then. The name of the of the letter, the bull was called Gravis ad modum, which means uh, very serious. And the contents of that letter was that uh, uh, Finns uh, are happy to get the help that the church gives to it in times of need. But when things are going well, Finns blaspheme the God and the church and Christianity in general, and they make fun of fun of it, and uh, they uh, persecute the priests and so forth. And because of this, Finns are twice the children of hell. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, to this day, uh, Vatican haven't, haven't taken its words back. <laughs> still, you're like the Cathars. <laughs> yeah, anyway, but uh, back to Kalevala, yeah, like... Um, 1835, um, the first edition of the book came out, and um, yes, it was very important when it comes to the raising feeling of uh, national identity. Uh, this intensified during that century, and uh, by the late 19th century, it was like a really like a getting bigger and bigger. And of course, like having your own national epic, that's a big thing. Like, a, that's a big thing. Uh, it's like a, you, you're proud of your own language, your own culture in many ways. You have your own, this book, national epic, that tells the myths and the stories and have this like a national mythic hero, Vainamonen, the main hero of the book, and all these other characters and great stories. So we are like a, a great nation among others. We have our own national epic, and it had a very, very big role. Um, the book was collected uh, by this learned road from the eastern part of Finland, from the Pohjois Karjala area, northern Karelia. Largely, this area is now on the Russian side, but uh, back then it was still part of Finland. And uh, he collected this and put together into this book. Uh, we, are, we have a very, very rich um, arch archives in general about uh, uh, this kind of a folk, folk uh, poetry and folk um, ideas, pre-Christian uh, ideas of, uh, of a lot of different kind of moods and supernational beings and all of that and how to deal with uh, these different realms of reality and well basically magical ideas and so maybe the first important work in this way to be mentioned was by Christfried Genander who lead from 1741 till 1790 he wrote this uh, book called Mythologica Fennica which first time um, told about these things and there are other works of course too that has been of important and um, still, still still today uh, these things inspire like a, especially like a, those people who fall into the neo-pagan category like a, are these things are of special inspiration for them but for other people too but uh, yeah back to Kalevala it was a big thing and uh, of course it's a national epic still today it's, uh, it's greatly important to Finns. brain fog insomnia moodiness weight gain 
Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Yes, indeed. There is one part of your book you're talking about, uh, the Kalevala, how it was an impact already in the 19th century. So, of course, You've got the, somebody in the Theosophical Society. I don't know if it, was, it might have been Blavatsky or Ani Besant, but of course, had to say that the people of the Kalevala were connected to, surprise, Atlantis. So <laughs> it's like, it had to be Atlantis, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. There is this, <laughs> this, this link there too. Yeah, right. But already beginning from uh, Pekka Ervast, uh, who's a uh, character of the first chapter. Uh, he was the man who was, you could say, responsible, really bringing theosophical society and theosophical thinking, philosophy to Finland. Uh, he was deeply inspired by Kalevala and its mythical worldview and heroes as well. So it was already there and uh, going through the decades after that uh, there can be um, we can find other other persons and groups that have been inspired by it still yeah yeah reka reka ervast he said i think it was 1918 i have the notes here he said that vineomen actually spoke to him and guided yes. him to continue the yes. cultism. So same yes. thing that happens in all religions you know some great <laughs> being speaks through us you know yeah 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 he um ervast was uh, ervast was born 1875 died 1934 he was quite humble man, like a very honest spiritual seeker. You could you could say that he never got pee in his head. He, he his ego didn't like I get big when he became right. more and more famous and so. But uh, at some point he felt like that uh, he has a message from Vainamoinen, the main hero of Kalevala, the national epic, and it was a, like a difficult thing for him to bring this forth to. Finnish members of Theosophical Society that are, hey, I actually have this kind of message. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but he did, and apparently there was something in there because uh, it all played out, I guess, pretty well. Yeah, yeah, it's always better when you've got one of the big guns talking through you, whether it's yeah. Jesus, <laughs> Mohammed, Vineman, you know, you'll get more done, more people will listen to you, of course. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, it's interesting because, yeah, he, um, he was one of the pioneers to bring the Theosophical Society to Finland. He was in Helinski, but he also had uh, sort of a friction, right? When uh, mm -hmm. Besant and Leadbeater were trying to bring the savior of the world, Krishna Murtinala, he did not yeah. like that pivot from yes. the Theosophical Society. Yes, 
there was of course uh, this kind of inner schisms within theosophical society in general and of course Ervast was became part of it too because he was a head of the society in in in, in Finland uh, typical to Ervast he was very diplomatic and he tried to remind others in the society that are hey we are really all about brotherhood and these uh, spiritual ideas we shouldn't fight about political things or, or this kind of power play within our own society or uh, society in general that are uh, so Ervas was this kind did he of break a, did he break away from the theosophical society did he stick it eventually yes uh, he uh, he wanted to found inside Finnish uh, Theosophical Society a kind of occult branch, but uh, this didn't get much support. And uh, he and those that supported him back then got annoyed. And uh, then they broke break away from uh, Theosophical Society. And Ervast founded his own organization, Rusuristi, which can be translated as Rose Cross. And uh, he continued with that. He also brought to, uh, was very important in bringing to Finland this uh, Ledroit Humine Freemasonry, which is the type of Freemasonry that uh, also accepts women as members. So it was, um, he was very important in this too. This happened before he uh, founded his Rusuristi uh, own organization. But yeah, he eventually broke away from Theosophical Society because of like a different views and uh, that his ideas didn't get support that he was looking for. Fascinating. Yeah. And going back to the Kalevala, uh, maybe you could tell the audience about Vainenomen because uh, I was reading, yes, uh, he's this great warrior, but he also goes into the underworld like mm -hmm. Gilgamesh and Orpheus and all mm -hmm. Hercules, all these heroes seem to go down into the underworld the great you know going down into the unconscious but yeah so how would you um parallel vinyl into other heroes or what makes him unique or what what maybe what archetypal image does he represent who is this guy <laughs> uh he's the main national uh, mythical hero of, of finland <laughs> <laughs> he is this uh great uh, great hero who is able to uh, he's mortal he, or demigod that's a matter of definition yeah, right? of de 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 demigod is probably quite close uh, he has these amazing occult powers of course and as you said uh, he he's able to travel between this world and the underworld and bring knowledge from there and uh, he has this amazing uh poem singing skills that he can use this kind of verbal magic knowing the roots or root uh, causes of things he can use this singing this verbal magic to cause all kind of things and uh and uh yeah yeah but he, and he can be compared like you said to other kind of uh, mythical mythical figures there are definitely not just a, a powerful warrior he's a, a shaman a poet a bard he's like the renaissance man which is right right exactly i am like i say that um yeah he has this kind of warrior skill too but if one reads through the book uh he's not really like a warrior 
Like uh, that's not so emphasized. I would say he's more shaman. It's about uh, uh, it's about just keeping the uh, his like defending his uh, group and uh, doing good for it. Like it's but it's not so much about doing battle, like a battle against other 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 groups or so in the war war sense. But there is of course this a battle between. Or battle, or uh, this tension in Kalevala stories between this Pohjola and this uh, this uh, Louhi, this uh, this uh, evil figure, and uh, who they try to steal this sample, this kind of wonder mill, and and, and so. But uh, Kalevala has not been like a use as much as a like a book to like a boost your moral in battle, like a. Some other national epics, maybe it's a, it's a more you could say like a more peaceful maybe. Although there are this kind of battle and uh, this kind of confrontational elements, but um, hmm, yeah. Oh, well, wonderful. Well, maybe it's good. You don't want Marvel to come out and make a movie out of this stuff and chief <laughs> <laughs> somebody. Uh, must yeah. With this, then we are wondering every now and then, like uh, when somebody is going to make this into a movie and uh, who is going to play Vinamoinen. So uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm afraid. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's let's wait. But I mean, uh, the Indians, the Chinese do great epics these days uh, mm-hmm. with their and with their national stories and their myths. So mm-hmm. and so, yeah, the technology's there and the, the good writing is there. So hopefully. Mm-hmm be good and uh vance uh what do you think uh, so far do you have any questions yeah i'm i'm fascinated by this it's the first time i've heard of any of it and um i was wondering about um you know if there were influences from you know nearby sweden or uh, or germany to the south or other places or is this totally uh native you know the the story of the Kalevala, or did and did the Kalevala influence other countries? Did you know the the story um, seep out to the surrounding areas? Good question. Uh, this is not exactly in my area of uh, expertise, but uh, of course, when it comes to how this kind of uh, folk stories, myths, poetry is created. Uh, nothing happens in vacuum. There is a cultural influence from from a surrounding areas, and uh, you can see these influences there. But uh, at the same time, there is something like a unique to, to this area. There is, of course, like you can see similarities between Vainamoinen and Odin and uh, and uh, and so forth. It's a. Uh, it's not something that uh that there would be just like that. Something you can't find from anywhere else. These kind of elements. There are lots of common, common, common things. Um, um, I lost my thought. What? How? how what was your question? <laughs> oh, I was just wondering about the relationship of the uh, the world of the Kalevala to you know other mythologies. And, uh, for example, you know, we, we know that the Greek and the Roman gods were very closely coupled. You know, the Romans pretty much copied it. But it doesn't seem to me on first hearing that, um, you know, the characters in the Kalevala are that closely coupled to even the, uh, you know, the other Scandinavian mythology that, you know, we in the West are, are, are uh, subject to 
and, mm-hmm. or you know uh, European like we know about Thor and Loki and Odin and all that stuff mm-hmm. but 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 somehow you know it's the Kalevala characters haven't seeped into us uh as deeply so I'm wondering if that if that implies that there's not as tightly coupled a connection even there are correspondences between you know Thor Loki Odin and everybody and the um and the Greek and Roman gods that they're they're closer correspondences so I was wondering if you had a comment on that there have been lots of uh, speculation about this uh, like uh, what would these characters be in a Roman mythology or Scandinavian mythology and and so there are some similarities here and there but uh, it's not like a super like a clear that all right like a this correspondence to this and so, but uh, maybe Vainamoinen is the most easiest one to to uh, put, uh, like see similarities between some characters. This has been a topic of a, of, of a lots of speculation and talk throughout the year. And uh, from our book too, like um, it's possible to find, there was this, um, this uh, guy, um, in the chapter about occultism, nationalism, like the Sigurd Betten of Jaspa, born 1870, died 1946. He um, he draw uh, like similarities between characters of Kalevala to <laughs> to gods of Egypt, ancient Egypt, oh, and, and all the all these wild things. And doubt here and there but uh there is something uh, something unique in in Kalevala like a uh, I can't like this is uh, not my area of expertise but I would say that uh, if somebody's interested uh find a copy easy to find nowadays and uh, it's a great great book just as a mythical story and um there are good English translations, so I very much recommend if uh, somebody's interested, just go and find it and, and read it. It's it's great, fantastic. Yeah, it sounds like, yeah, very rich tradition. And uh, well, going back to the esoteric, I'm sure people want to know as always our other favorite or perhaps everybody's favorite villain for the last hundred years are the occult Nazis. How has, how did Nazism uh, affect Finland occultism? Obviously, as you write in your book, uh, there was a lot of plenty of, uh, you know, white nationalists, uh, weird people that really bought into it too. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, there are this. There you can, one can find uh, connections to National Socialist in Germany. In our book, uh, the first person that we find in this category is uh, is Uriel von Gronhagen, a nobleman born 1911, died 2003. He uh, ended up becoming a close friend of Heinrich Himmler and uh, Karl Maria Willigut. And because of these connections, uh, well, he was sent um, to uh, eastern part of Finland, this area from which uh, the poems of Kalevala was uh, collected from. And he was sent there by this Anenerbe, this uh, SS, uh, pseudoscientific Nazi institute, to collect a uh, uh, folk poetry and uh, get these uh, 
Gandele instruments for Himmler and uh, and and uh, in his um, involvement in all of this, uh, Uri von Grönhagen, of course, witnessed all kind of things and became like a very intimately involved with uh, Karl Maria Willigut and, and his uh, wild esoteric ideas. Uh, Grönhagen wasn't himself like any diehard like um, um, practitioner of, of these things, but he saw it very closely and he was involved. He had a very strong spiritual uh, guess, I would say, of, of his own. But uh, the first this kind of a Nazi connections in this Finnish esoteric history can be, I said, found from here, and this is, of course, at the very core of Nazi esotericism, like if you're close to Karl Maria Willigut, how you can get any, <laughs> yeah. any closer than that. Yeah. Then there were, of course, uh, during, uh, during the time of the Nazi regime, there were people who were, uh, like, I'm thinking positively of the, of the Nazi Germany politics, like the Sigurd Bettenhovi Aspa, who I mentioned already, and so then the Second World War ended, and uh, the world after that opened. Uh, the most infamous person who was openly a neo-Nazi and an occultist at the same time was Pekka Sitoin, born 1944, died 2003. Uh, he was a very peculiar guy. He mixed politics and occultism in his very unique way. Uh, came out in the early 70s as a neo-Nazi and at the same time devil worshipper. Not exactly a combination to get friends. <laughs> <laughs> no, or votes. And, uh, and uh, uh, he was uh, he was quite something. He was uh, generally nobody nowadays takes him seriously when it comes to as a political influence or a serious uh, esotericist or so. But uh, in the seventies, still, like uh, his books and ideas, like uh, they were taken more seriously than now. And uh, and his occult society, this Turun Hengetiet and Seura, kind of a Turku society of spiritual sciences, had a bunch of members, and uh, they published lots of books and had meetings. And uh, then this politics started to become more and more involved with the activities of the group and. They were not only talking, but they were really in direct action. They sent letter bombs and they did lots of threats. And mm -hmm. uh, in was 1977, 78, uh, things escalated to such a point that one of the more mentally unstable members of Seton society tried to explode this uh, Kursevi, uh, this communist printing house. And uh, that was a huge national scandal. The place was burned badly, and um, so the bomb didn't detonate. But uh, it was it was serious, and uh, he got a prison sentence for that, and uh, and some other members of the group. And uh, and uh, after that, he was more more quiet, but still continued to uh, talk about well both politics and occultism, and he. He really continued uh, with both of these things till till his death. And the uh, story goes that his last wife told that Zitoin still on his deathbed that he was crying for help from Lucifer that uh, he could <laughs> he could like uh, 
get healed and 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 all of stuff that stuff but seton was it's very difficult to um to uh describe he was so bizarre character and uh but in the book in the book uh we go very very throughoutly uh, the basics of his life and go also a bit deeper so it's all there and uh <laughs> it's a uh, it's odd it's it's a kind of funny horrifying at the same time <laughs> yeah and he makes his own very peculiar mix of politics and uh uh, theosophy and homespun devil worship, all of this. <laughs> so he thinks uh, God is a communist, I guess, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he didn't think very warmly of them. <laughs> there are other persons too, like uh, who fall within this uh, connection with um, Nazis and occultism, like what, like we write in this chapter about occultism, nationalism. There is like a, especially this Vainokuisma who tried to cooperate with Seton at some point, but uh, it didn't really work out. Nowadays, there is a, and there is a, none of these guys really around, but um, when it comes to like a recent groups that somehow somebody might link to uh, these uh, Nazi groups, there is this uh, kind of, you could say, left-hand path organization or Satanist organization called... Uh, Black Order of Pan Europe, they 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 have these links with this Order of Nine Angles and all of that very infamous stuff. And they are not just esoteric or magical, but they at least want to look like that they are politically active in the world too. And apparently there is something in that. So this undercurrent kind of threat in the story is there too, but uh, it's not that big, though. So. Yeah, but it's still fascinating how you describe these characters in your book. And in um, World War II, Finland was neutral, right? Uh, we <laughs> we tried to be neutral. Uh, at some point uh, of of the war, uh, well, we were we were a small country. We are a small country between uh, Russia, who is our eastern neighbor. We have a very long uh, borderline with them, so so of course they were influencing us a lot. But uh, but then at some point we needed help against Russia, and there was Nazi Germany and Finland allied with Nazi Germany for a period of time. They came with their Stukas to help on the Eastern Front, and what the military power they brought here, and uh, well, then things changed again, and uh, that uh, that. Uh, uh, that went down, and Nazis left Finland and burned Lapland, and <laughs> oh wow, <laughs> and and so so we were we tried to be quite neutral, neutral, but it's difficult in situations like that. So for a short some period of time, we were allied with Nazis, but uh, that was only for for right. a part of the time, and only because like we had really no choice. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you had Stalin. I mean, you were yep. Finland was part of uh, the Russian Empire, and then the Soviets came and kind of forgot about Finland or let Finland stay. But I'm sure, even today, I'm sure Finland is always like, "When are the Russians going to come for us?" Not if, but when, right? It's um, well, we became independent in 1917, and. Uh, after that, of course, like during the Second World War, we had the uh, Winter War and Continuation War, and uh, 
although those things are like, um, they didn't happen during the last decade, but are more far away anyway, they are historically considering quite close and these kind of things don't fade away easily from national memory. So uh, it, it's there. And of course, like in today's situation, all these old kind of memories, especially for older people, they are there and this potential threat is, is there. Yeah. yeah, that's history for you. And um, in, uh, as you write in your book, Vesa, in, uh, during the Tsarist Russia time period, uh, Freemasonry was banned. Right. But once the Soviets took over and Finland was able to become independent and what Freemasonry beyond Ledroit Humane was able to really enter into Finland. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, that's how it went. Uh, after 1917, it was all right again publicly to run, run uh, Freemason, Freemasonry here and uh, the traditional type of Freemasonry uh, was resurrected here. And uh, then at the same time, or actually a bit earlier than that, uh, this Ledroit Humane type of Freemasonry arrived, arrived as well. So yeah, it was a uh, dormant, like about for a hundred years here because it became banned. But uh, I'm sure there was a kind of underground activity by ex-Masons and, uh, and people involved uh, during that dormant hundred years. And there were other kind of uh, secret societies during that time too that can be seen from the newspapers of, of that time or kind of a interesting occult society pop, popping up here and there and they were clearly at least influenced by Freemasons if not run by people who were involved so yeah that's that's how it went nowadays like elsewhere they are of course still there and uh and have a fairly big number of members. And like elsewhere in, elsewhere in Europe and in the States, uh, they have lots of uh, pretty famous people, people in politics uh, and uh, other, other positions of power. And of course of that, uh, they also like uh, got these uh, controversies every now and then that they are involved in this and that. And, uh, and so, but uh, based on all the research, like really good academic research. And so like, uh, as we know, this is uh, basically nonsense, but uh, these, these things go as they go. <laughs> it doesn't matter the country. It's the same, yeah. same wacky Satanist, same Freemason yeah. rumors. Yeah. Nothing changes. Every country is yeah. Yeah. Got their same thing. And, uh, and if people want to uh, get to know you more, uh, where they can find out more about you, Vesa website, anything else like that? I would say the best place is to find us from Facebook. Uh, if, if you search the Lightbringers of the North, you will find the books page. And well, we have a Instagram page as well. Both places uh, have uh, uh, pictures related to the book. Uh, most of them are in color. In the book, they are in black and white. Uh, from those pages, you can find them in color. There is also some extra extra stories and uh, links and all that kind of stuff. So if somebody is interested to contact me about the book or just find more about the uh, characters and uh, stories, both of those pages are good places to 
to go. And of course, like the book itself can be found from the internet, from uh, many, many uh, bookstores online. And it's very well, uh, I'm, I've understood also available as a physical copy from regular bookstores. So awesome. Yeah, that's it. I'll have something in the show notes. And yes, the book can be purchased from the good people at Inner Traditions. I love that publisher. They they will publish everything that's esoteric, uh, no matter how controversial or niche or forgotten. They're always pumping up. And I'm very happy that they put out this book because, again, it's a very overlooked and rich tradition. And I hope it continues. So, mm-hmm. But we are at the end, Vesa. Thank you very much for coming on the show. And uh, good luck with all your projects and everything else. Thank you so much. It was absolutely an honor to be on your show. Honor was all ours, and thank you again for coming on. Thank you. And there you have it, my beloved true seekers. The first part of our interview with Vesa. In our second part, Vesa discusses Gurdjieff and his influence on Finland, and vice versa. Vesa will talk about UFO visitations and experiences in Finland. He'll share some amazing but disturbing stories of occult rituals and crimes in his homeland. Very graphic shit. And how some may be tied to... Bum bum bum... Alistair Crowley. Then Vesa will grant us a state of the union when it comes to occultism in Finland today. Is there a pagan or esoteric revival? Or is the country hopelessly falling into secularism? and much more. So please become a member for the full dope. It's only $6.99 for AB Prime members, or $4.99 at Red Circle, or whatever you want to pledge on Patreon. For AB Prime members and higher level patrons, you'll get access to my private Facebook group and Discord. If you find value in this content, please support this Red Pill Cafeteria. Your help can be in the form of some shekel donations to PayPal or even the U.S. mail. There is also a link on the show notes if you want to leave a tip via Stripe now. I also have the merch store and an Amazon wish list. Consider joining the Finding Hermes program, where we have bi-monthly meetings on Gnostic practices and rituals, as well as some cool Q&As. I'm also on Rockfin or Odyssey if crypto is your bag. If you need help with any of these choices, just message my ass. I'm always here to help, and I truly appreciate your help. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being yourself, your true self, here in the desert of the real. Hello and goodbye, as always. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. 
With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.